My name's Olivia. I'm Raven. We are not the default Americans. When we go back in the past for black history, well, now we got a problem. But for white people? How far you want to go? If you want to piss off any everyday average non-black American, just add black. Including black people is not excluding white people. Every damn time we get rights or acknowledgement, it sparks a violent rage. Especially in white people. I am not less deserving just because I'm a black blind woman. Disability makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It affects the psyche of people with disabilities. Like, did we not contribute? Another way to fight against oppression is to celebrate our successes and our progress. We're not completely our oppression. You can sit there and talk about how you think everybody is equal, but do equality, do equity. As long as they're getting what they need, they don't want things to change. Today we're talking about the Helen Keller you did not know about her life beyond advocating for disabled people and, you know, just existing as a deaf blind person. Because I think a lot of times when people (laughs) when people think of Helen Keller, they just honestly celebrate this woman because she existed as a deaf blind person and not for the stuff that she actually advocated for and accomplished Mm -hmm. in her life. Yeah, I was just going to say most people don't know anything aside from anything related to Mm -mm. blindness that she's done. They didn't teach us about that. They just taught us about the fucking miracle worker and the water pump thing. And that was basically it. Okay, the miracle worker is the movie that was made about her and Ann Sullivan. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a play first. I didn't. Yes, I I saw that. that. I mean, I've seen snippets of the film. I didn't know it was called The Miracle Worker. I saw it when I was a child. A lot of times when we hear about Helen Keller, she's depicted as a little girl and not a grown ass woman who lived for (laughs) 88 88 years. (laughs) She's just shy of her 88th birthday. Yeah. Apparently, they have a statue in D.C. of her as a seven year old. As a little girl. Yeah. And so it gets kind of drilled into the minds of people that she was a child. And they said in the research, it kind of played into the idea that people with disabilities are infantilized. And I was like, yo, you guys have a point. You really do, because they don't talk about adult Helen Keller, not like really. Disabled folks were being infantilized well before that. Oh, for sure. But they're still doing it now. This is a very good example of that, that this incredibly historic public figure with a disability is just always remembered as a child. That's very strange that people have allowed that to happen and continue to perpetuate it as well. Mm -hmm. And also as an asexual and apolitical adult, which she was not. not No, she was not. We're going to talk about that. (laughs) We're going to talk about some great things that she's done. And we're going to talk about how she has things. Yeah. How she's been sanitized. Yeah. Because listen, people are complex. And as is often the case, there are people who do very good things, who also have some very shitty views, who do Mm -hmm. some super deeply disturbing things and support Mm -hmm. some disturbing things. And we like to give you the whole story. And so, yeah, you get to see the good and bad sides of Helen Keller today. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. Yes, you do. She was born on June 27, 1880 in Alabama. And I'm not going to get into her childhood because I won't say it's well documented so much as there's a lot of information on it. They like to make it seem like she was just this feral creature before Anne Sullivan came along, but she wasn't. So there's information that she even wrote about herself. She being Helen Keller, about how she could communicate with her family and stuff. It was basically just within her family who understood her signs and things like that. But what you didn't know and what I didn't know is this chick was a whole ass socialist, okay? She was part of the Socialist Party and she actually believed, wrote about and spoke about the fact that disability was caused in part by capitalism and poverty. And she was one of the first to really link lots of disabilities with poverty. And she fought for the ending of poverty, considering it's 2022 and we still got a big problem. Didn't quite work the way she wanted, but hey. We are a big fan of letting <laughs> everybody sort out their own problems. We like suffering here we in these do. here United States of America. I suffered and so you should suffer. That's I didn't have help, so world. you don't need help. You don't need help. Like, I know it's miserable for me, but it should also be miserable for you because that's not fair to me. <laughs> you were dealt a shitty hand, so just Play be happy with like that. the rest of us and pray it away. <laughs> so what I also didn't know was she was a founder of the ACLU. For those who are listening from other countries, that is the American Civil Liberties Union. And she also supported the NAACP. She did not found the NAACP. Uh, yes, as an article said, it said right. she co-founded the NAACP and the she ACLU. No, do not do this and do not. They're doing that savior type of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. They're doing the white savior thing with her. We can believe that she did good things without you. Lying. I don't know if the author was making shit up, but they didn't do their research correctly. I will give it to Helen Keller because she was born into a family of means and she was white. So she had some privileges that others did not have. So she could say and do a lot more with less impunity. And I don't think people take that into consideration when I'm not trying to take anything off her. OK, she did all the things that we're talking about. However, she did not have the same restrictions put upon mm -hmm. her as people who were not white or not well off. Like, hell, even her companion, Ann Sullivan, was a child of immigrants who was institutionalized. So yes, she was institutionalized because she was nearly blind herself. Exactly. I think we need to keep that in mind while we're like, oh, hell, Helen Keller. I mean, we're not doing that, but people. No, we're not. Yeah. She was able to achieve so much as a disabled person and essentially become this beloved figure in society, partially due to the fact that she came from means. And because of her race and because she was also a woman who they could dress her up and dress her down when they wanted to. Yes. And the media did. Yeah. You just make her very angelic. Yes. Mm -hmm. She was also an opponent of lynchings, which I found hilarious. That's not the right word. Um, well, yeah. I say that because she's a descendant of Confederate supporters and 
generals and colonels yeah, people and who that. fought on the side <laughs> of the Confederacy. Yes. yes. So it is interesting, but I don't know. That's a lot of people now, right? There's lots of people who are anti-racist and who were brought racist up by ancestry. racist people. Yes. That is true. She also campaigned for access to birth control, um, workers' rights, and was on the FBI's watch list for communist activity from 1949 until her death in 1968. I wonder, is it because she had a red flag? She did have a red flag and she associated with known socialists and people of the Communist Party. And, and she feminism. Was not shy. Yes. Well, and it's tough and too feminism. because here's the thing. A lot of people associated with the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. And she believed in a lot of their tenets. A lot of people associated with the Communist Party because they believed that would be their ticket to achieving equal rights. Mm-hmm. Or that would allow them to have more capital in the fight for equal rights. How about that? Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of black people who joined the Communist Party. There were women who did so, right? Because you want people who want black liberation, women's liberation. And Helen Keller was active in arguing for equal rights for black folks and women. And so right. I can see why... She may have aligned herself with, at the very least, people who were in the Communist Party. I don't know if she participated in any of their campaigns or activities. So what I found was she was not necessarily a member of the Communist Party, but she was a member of the Socialist Party of America. I'm not entirely certain that those are exactly the same things. No, no, but they they're kind not, of... but we do criminalize socialism over here yeah, with all of our do. social safety nets that we do have in place even still. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's hilarious. Uh, I'm like, these people would know what you're talking about. But that's an episode for another day. Oh, it is. Most of her works that she wrote, I want to say post-1920, have been lost to time, most likely by design, because they thought her writings to be too radical. So they do have letters that she wrote to individual people. But by and large, a lot of her like books and stuff and essays and things that she wrote after graduating from what was then Radcliffe College and what is now known as Harvard in 1924. Most of her works after that have been um, lost to time because they were like, this chick is too radical. She's talking about birth control and workers' rights and supporting Black people. And what the hell? Absolutely not. We cannot have that. Well, and I think also a lot of people dismissed her as a deafblind person They did. And we're just like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, you live in this fantasy land. You don't even know what's going on in the real world. That's essentially (laughs) what she said. Yeah. To paraphrase, she said, as long as I'm talking about securing literacy and Braille for blind children and educating blind children, they hold me up as like a paragon of virtue. But as soon as I start talking about workers' rights and equality then all of a sudden, I don't know what I'm talking about. Yes. She's not wrong. The media demonized her whenever she spoke out about it. And she never went back on her positions, but they were like, oh, this poor deaf and blind girl didn't know what she was talking about. She lives in a utopia a fantasy world and she just doesn't have any real clue what's going on in the real world. But we cannot get away from the fact that this woman 
was a disability elitist. Yes, she was. And we're going to get into that. And she believed that certain disabilities like her own, you could teach those people could learn and be productive and contributing members of society, but other people with other disabilities, not so much. Okay, one, going forward in this episode, I'm going to be using all sorts of ableist terminology. We did that in the previous episode we had about eugenics, which I will link in the show notes, and we're going to do it again. That is not to say that this language is okay, but this is the language that people were using at the time. It's the language that Helen Keller used herself as well, because that was the time that she grew up in. To be historically accurate, I am also going to be using that language, because sanitizing it doesn't help us understand where we came from and why it's important to continue having an understanding of ableist terminology that was used then and that is used today. So there was a certain level of disabled that people were, and I don't, I don't quite know where that line was drawn, at which you were just considered an idiot or an imbecile or essentially severely disabled. And that line was drawn in different places for different people. There's a whole host of disabilities I can think of now that we have names for now that I'm like, huh, that person probably would have been considered too disabled to live to be allowed to continue living Mm -hmm. and if you just didn't look normal i think a lot of times right especially as an infant they didn't think that you were worth saving the thing i will say about helen keller being a proponent of eugenics or just anyone it's not just helen keller but one these people are not experienced in the medical field not that that means that what you think is right <laughs> as we'll see Quite as as we're gonna get into <laughs> dear god <laughs> but it's very easy to say what is or isn't possible when you are distant from a situation i guess is my point like when you don't have an understanding of different medical conditions and i'm sure there were people who like even with helen keller's case There are people who had children like Helen Keller who went deaf blind or were disabled as a result of some condition, and they did leave them. They did just abandon them. They did just put them in an institution or a poorhouse, you know, where they they just left everybody who society didn't know what the fuck to do with, right? If you were a criminal, mentally unstable, you were disabled beyond whatever your community was able to help, or you were too sick to assist. They put all sorts of, (laughs) like, poor unwed mothers. All these people living under the same roof is just asinine. I think they even consider prostitution. Yes, prostitution was a mental illness, or they considered you mentally unfit. Yeah. Couldn't possibly be poverty. Oh, not at all. So (laughs) if Helen Keller had been born into a different family, she would have wound up in a place like that, like Mm -hmm. we already said. But I think it's just so easy to dismiss other people's situations when you're distant from them. And you just don't have an understanding of what is possible. Also, you come up in this society where people aren't exactly encouraged to I guess have a vision about what could be possible. I'm always going to go back to Eliza Suggs' family because I think it's just the fucking perfect example of that. But people were not 
encouraged to think like, okay, how can we help this person? Like, it doesn't seem possible now, but how are we going to be able to help this disabled person? Instead, people were encouraged to just, hey, go leave them at a poorhouse or you let nature take its course, so to speak, rather than giving a person additional support so that they can thrive the way that other people can. When it comes to Helen Keller, she's a product of the society she grew up in, as we all are. And Mm -hmm. just as there were people who weren't aware of how to help deafblind children before a certain point, I think Helen Keller, too, you know, she was familiar with the disabilities she had. She wasn't familiar with all the other disabilities out there. So... I think her views come from that lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. But she didn't realize that she was doing the same thing. Like she was perpetuating the same views towards disabled people that other people had about her. I mean, at the very exactly. least, people had about the illness and disability she developed as a child. So mm-hmm. we are going to talk about a very famous medical case. That you can't find on YouTube. You really can't. (laughs) I think that's so wild. Can't find anybody (laughs) talking about this. But it took place in 1915. I think it put eugenics in the media because, of course, I mean, as we have talked about on a previous episode, eugenics was well underway, especially when it came to disabled people, well before 1915. I mean, we talked in that episode about how there were laws against disabled people marrying, Mm -hmm. and there was a whole court case about forcibly sterilizing disabled people, okay? And again, this took place right here in the United States. A lot of people do not associate eugenics early history with the U.S., but listen... Yo, we gave other people ideas, okay? Nazi Germany just took it and commercialized that shit. But they got it from us. They got, some they got a lot here. of it. They got medical professionals from us. Yeah. Doing it over sure. there. So let's get into it. All right. This is the case of Baby Bollinger. And it took place in Chicago, Illinois in 1915. Baby John Bollinger was born paralyzed on the left side of his body he was missing his entire left ear and his right eardrum his right cheek was connected to his shoulder and he had a curved spine and a closed intestinal tract so he had multiple are we going to say maladies yeah he had multiple health issues there you go he was disabled quite clearly yeah so his only chance for survival was going to be for immediate surgery So in comes Dr. Harry Heiselden. So we've been going back and forth on how to pronounce this. So (laughs) we might say Heiselden, Hazelden. It took place at a hospital of German origin in Chicago. It was a German-American hospital here. There you go. In the U.S. So, yeah. If I say Hazelden, I don't know. I already said I might say both. (laughs) So I don't know how to pronounce it. We YouTube this shit like Olivia said. And we could not find it. Listen. It was freaking wild. So we're just gonna, <laughs> it's the same guy, okay? We say Hazelden, <laughs> yes. Hazelden, same guy. Same right? guy. Yes. <laughs> he comes in as a consultant and they're like, yo, sir, what should we do about this baby? Like, he has all these issues. Dr. Hazelden examines this baby and he goes, this doesn't look good for him. 
an important thing to note for Dr. Harry Heiselden, he was a believer in the doctrine of eugenics. After he examined this baby, he determined that even with successful surgery, the child would grow to be a mental and moral defective who would be a burden on both his family and society and essentially taint the gene pool. Yeah. And they believe that about a lot of different disabled people. It's not Mm -hmm. like (laughs) because there's not a way you could know that. Right. There is nothing about his exterior that says that he would not be able to attain I don't know, something close to average intelligence. But even still, like, of course, it's weird to talk about this case in a way that doesn't sound ableist. I mean, of course, I I understand, like, now it doesn't fucking matter what your level of intelligence is or what your IQ is or however the fuck you want to measure it. You're still deserving. You still deserve to live. Everybody's not going to change the world on an epic proportion. It doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be alive. Most people do and not change Most people world, make no okay? fucking impact and just Most live their everyday fucking life. <laughs> okay. And it is it is fucking wild that there is this double standard. But anyway, I mean, as far as like being a mental and moral defective. You can't make that determination. You can't make that determination based on the health conditions and disabilities that he had. Exactly. I mean, at most we know he would have been deaf to some extent. And then I think at the time they could have done corrective surgery for his GI tract. Of all his conditions, that's the most fatal, right? If you have a closed GI tract, you can't pass anything. anything. So that is fatal. But I do think at the time they could have done surgery to help him. And yeah, I mean, it's it's high-risk surgery, right? It's possible that he could have died during surgery, but that's better than what actually happened. So we're going to talk about what actually happened. It's interesting that you mentioned that because that was one of the arguments made later. What the doctor did decide to do was uh, let this child starve to death. Yeah. And it took the baby five days to die. And That's um, terrible. That is an yeah. agony. So you let somebody exist in five days of agony. Mm-hmm. I forgot to mention that Dr. Heiselden talked to the parents and they were essentially in agreement. Yeah, they just said to him, like, do whatever you think is fit. I think is best. The father saw the child. The mother never did, according to the research that I saw. Dr. Heiselden himself actually went to the media with this case because he thought it would prove his case for eugenics. Like, yeah. look, I did the right thing. Yes, he was very comfortable with the choice that he yes. made. And also, like... It was not abnormal at the time for people to allow this to happen. I mean, even if you just had home births, people did this quite frequently, where if an infant was born with a deformity, you would just allow that person to die, allow nature to take its course, as I said earlier, Mm -hmm. rather than nurturing that infant. To piggyback off of what you said, in my research, they said that roughly an infant a day died during those times. It was probably more Chicago people than that, alone. right? Like how many people are born every day? Yeah. I mean, he just pulled that out of his yeah. ass, really. But he was nobody trying- argued it. That was the thing. Yeah, nobody contested that. And also, I think he was just trying to demonstrate how common this is and normalize. a. Al- Ooh, just normalize allowing people to die. 
and like, well, it should be okay because people do it all the time. That does not make something okay. Let me just say this. How how popular something is, how how many people do it, how often it happens, how long ago it happens, I don't give a fuck. That does not make something okay. Just because other people do it, have done it, used to do it. Or it's tradition. That does not make it okay. It doesn't make it okay. That does not make it acceptable. No, it does not. Sometimes it's interesting how we consider ourselves superior to uh, <laughs> other animals when, like, we ain't no better. We are not any other better. other animals do it too, and I'm just like, how do you consider yourself superior when you do shit like that and promote that shit? You justify Ooh. it. Other animals don't. They just be like, oh, but we're over here. Like, look, this is why we did it, and this is why it's right. Yeah, Not other animals do it because they don't have a choice. We actually have a choice. And it's like, if you want to consider us superior, think of us as superior animals, superior beings, whatever. Like, we now have the ability to save lives and think beyond the present, right? Mm -hmm. This is part of what makes us us, is our reflective thinking abilities. Dr. Harry Heiselden, yes, he questioned... If the child would have a clear mind, and I quote, a normally alive soul. You can't determine that anyway, but okay. She didn't think so. So when Heiselden took this to the media, there were the people going rah, 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 go Heiselden. Yeah, he's not worth, he's not fit to live. And then there were the other people going, what the hell are you doing? This is a child, a baby. And so there were threats of coming in and kidnapping the baby. They posted a guard near the child's bed so he wouldn't be kidnapped and taken to somebody who would help him. So they essentially just guarded this child and let him die. Well, the fucked up thing is also that Dr. Heiselden spoke in the hearing against him. And I think the people trying him were other physicians but yeah the people hearing his case were other physicians he talked about how he spoke to 15 other physicians about the baby's case and said to them too that if they were willing to operate on the child that they could and there was a person who decided supposedly that they wanted to operate on the kid but it was two hours before Mm -hmm. he died and so dr heiselden was like well no like You're not going to operate on a dying person, which that even doesn't make any sense. The fact that they thought that that was a legitimate thing to say is fucking stupid, but I'm okay. So anyway, honestly, they should have let this child be kidnapped. And that's, wow, that's a really strange sentence for me to say. But at the chance that he could have gotten a chance, because it's uh, like I said earlier, it's possible that he could have been given proper and adequate medical attention and still have died okay but i mean whatever like to me that's still a person that's a person and the fact that they stationed a guard is like i'm sorry sir you're full of shit full of shit and to your point earlier when you said he could have died during surgery that's what Dr. Heiselden actually tried to say. He was like, well, if I would have yes. operated on the baby and then he died during surgery, then I would have been accused of killing the baby during surgery. Sir, you killed the baby either way, but you didn't even try to operate on yeah, it. Yeah, it's like you let him in, die. In a terrible way. Starving to death 
normally is agonizing. He didn't just starve to death. He also had a closed GI tract. So that means that you can't defecate. Right. That's a big thing. That is a very important process that needs to take place, even if you're not eating. And I'm sure, like, they weren't giving this child anything. I want to say water. Babies aren't even supposed to have water, newborns. Um, But that is a very depressing and hopeless thing to think about. That's evil. And the fact that somebody could be so self-assured and comfortable with that choice is Mm -hmm. wild. In the end. He wasn't even actually prosecuted necessarily for the child's death. Mm-mm. They just sort of said, we don't think that was necessarily the right move. They did eventually fire him, but it wasn't for anything having to do. Yeah, the, with was it the Chicago Medical Society? It was something like that. And they said um, he was in breach of ethics. Revoked his he, membership. Because he took the story to the media and essentially got monetary compensation for the story. That was where the penalty came in. It was not for actively knowingly killing a child. And he still practiced medicine after that. Yes, he did. So, (sighs) And here, and we're bringing this up because this intersects with Helen Keller. (laughs) Let's talk about how this relates to Helen Keller, y'all. Y'all. hateful bitch. Helen Keller wrote this letter called... Physicians' Juries for Defective Babies. This was published in 1915 in some sort of journal. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. We're going to dissect this letter paragraph by paragraph. So I will read the paragraph and then like summarize it in layman's terms and um, give my little rebuttals to what she said. Much of the discussion aroused by Dr. Heiselden when he permitted the Bollinger baby to die centers around the belief in the sacredness of life. If many of those that object to the physician's course would take the trouble to analyze their idea of life, I think they would find that it means just to breathe. Surely they must admit that such an existence is not worthwhile. It is the possibilities of happiness, intelligence, and power that give life its sanctity, and they are absent in the case of a poor, misshapen, paralyzed, unthinking creature. I think there are many more clear cases of such hopeless death in life than the critics of Dr. Heiselden realize. The toleration of such anomalies tends to lessen the sacredness in which normal life is held. In this first paragraph of her letter, Keller is objecting to Arguments opposing eugenics and in favor of the sanctity of life. She says people's idea of life is just to breathe, which is not a worthwhile existence. I don't understand how that is not to be valued. I agree. There are certain levels of being disabled, certain levels of cognitive function or lack thereof. It's going to be a harder existence. Yeah. We could talk about, and maybe what she was referring to, but didn't have the language for, technically, was quality of life. I understand that, but, like, it should not be up to a doctor... Oh, no, I agree. ...to determine what your quality of life is going to be. There's not really a way for them to know, especially, like, when you're an infant. I mean, like, yes, there are certain things we know now, like, there are people who are born and, like, they only have a brain stem. Mm -hmm. I've listened to people who have adopted children like this and of course they don't live very long Mm -hmm. but they speak to how it seems like this person who's only got a brainstem 
still has some level of cognition, is still able to feel, still has reflexes. Has some awareness. Yeah. Yeah, yes, they have some level of awareness. When it comes to infants, I'm of the mind that, okay, you brought this person into the world. And I don't care. It, it might be the mom I'm talking to. It might be the doctors, whoever. Like, we have brought this person into the world, okay? After somebody is here, we should be giving them the things that they need to continue existing. I 100% agree with that. And you can call me out on my bullshit and say that I'm exhibiting cognitive dissonance by being anti-eugenics and pro-abortion. You can call me out on it. That's fine. Well, they'll call us both out because email us intersectional insights <laughs> at gmail.com. We can have the conversation. Call us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. I'll come out and say it right the fuck now. To me, life begins after you are born. Yeah, I don't agree with that. That's that for me. I believe life begins after you are born. I think life begins at conception. I do not. I still think that, and I'm still pro-abortion. When the person is here, when we, they should are be, here. we should be keeping you alive. Yes, by any means by necessary. By any means necessary. I'm not necessarily one to think that life is a gift, but I don't nope. think that it should be taken away from people once they are here. Depending on however a child is born, or whatever happens to said child or person, regardless, you know, like, oh, this person is, you know, had this terrible accident or whatever, whatever. Right, yeah. You should still fight to keep them alive. There shouldn't ever be any cases like baby Bollinger. No, there should not be cases like that. And of course, when it comes to adults, I think unless someone has explicitly said, you know, if this happens to me, please pull the plug. <laughs> right. Now, <laughs> right? Like, that's somebody like, expressing their If they have living choice. trusts or living those wills. medical directives or whatever, right? If they have that, yeah, we should respect people's wishes when it comes to stuff like that. Yeah, because they made that choice. Yes. So they're allowed to make that choice about their lives. Yes, that's them exercising bodily autonomy. Exactly. And the only way they can at that point, provided that that situation arises. When it comes to infants, small children, right, like they are at the mercy of their caregivers and yeah. or medical professionals. It is the responsibility to keep them alive. So even if Helen Keller, life just means breathing, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean a person who has um, lower cognitive abilities or who is just severely disabled. Because in the case of Baby Bollinger, we don't even know what his cognitive abilities would have been. He probably would have been all right cognitively, but the person was deformed. So it would have been rough for him in that way. But yeah, I think she is talking about quality of life, Olivia, because she goes on to say, It is the possibilities of happiness, intelligence, and power that give life its sanctity. And they are absent in the case of a poor, misshapen, paralyzed, unthinking creature. Ouch. That's an ugly thing to say, Very right? Like this letter difficult. is in response to the Bollinger baby. And we, again, we do not know that he's unthinking. And also it's a fucking infant. So like, it is an infant. how much cognition? See, oh, I, I just find this very problematic. Yes, he's partially paralyzed. He's deformed. And referring to him as a creature it's just, I'm going to Keep going because it gets worse. <laughs> wow. Her point at the ending of this paragraph is that tolerating the existence of people with deformities or severe disabilities devalues life. 
That is devaluing life by allowing Letting these people live. to live. That's what she said. Holy shit. I don't quite know how to pull that apart. She said it devalues normal life. Mm, mm, mm. Which is like, okay, you are kind of adding some extra baggage there because you're saying that all life is not valuable, which whatever, she she stood on that. She but did. the life to be valued is a normal life, and it is backward because she herself did not live a normal life. Like I said, she is what we today would term an ableist elitist. Yes. She did not see herself in Baby Bollinger. Ooh. Okay, we got to keep going. There is one objection, however, to this weeding of the human garden that shows a sincere love of true life. It is the fear that we cannot trust any mortal with so responsible and delicate a task. Yet have not mortals for long ages been entrusted with the decision of questions just as momentous and far-reaching? With kingship, with the education of the race, with feeding, clothing, sheltering, and employing their fellow men? In the jury of the criminal court, we have an institution that is called upon to make just such decisions as Dr. Heiselden made. To decide whether a man is fit to associate with his fellows, whether he is fit to live. This next paragraph, she is saying that the objection that demonstrates a true love of life is that we can't trust people with this sensitive task of deciding who lives and who dies. So she's saying that that is a valid objection, but here we go with this. Yet have not mortals for long ages been entrusted with the decisions of questions just as momentous and far-reaching? With kingship, with the education of the race, with feeding, clothing, sheltering, and employing their fellow men? Which I feel like is Did just miss beside the point. <laughs> what the fuck does that have to do with anything? How are those decisions far more momentous and far-reaching? I mean, I... Guess the decisions, kind of no, because are? she's saying that the decisions to take care of society are more momentous than deciding life and death. Those are heavier decisions than deciding who lives and who dies. I disagree with that. Okay. When you say it that way, I see your point. The difference is with those choices, people can. I use can quite conservatively here. But people have the abilities, though, to move to different communities if they don't like the way mm. a certain community is providing. That's why I say I'm using can conservatively because it's not always possible. There are, certain things, there are certain things that restrict your ability to do so. In the early 1900s, if you were a certain You would have to person, sacrifice a lot. I mean, I understand that. It's not as though the people who were entrusted with doing those things did them well either. Right. So and she, like but she brings that up. <laughs> oh, she brings that up later on because people don't do those well either. They're not going to be making these sorts of decisions in a perfect manner either when it comes to deciding who lives and who dies. But here, I think that all of this is beside the point. I agree. It's, it has nothing to do with the topic at hand, which is you let a child die, whether or not that was the right thing to do and to continue to do with other children like baby Bollinger. But to them, the pro-eugenics mindset, mm -hmm. these should be a part of everyday choices. And I think maybe that's why she brought this other stuff in here. These other, oh, these are large okay. decisions. These are big choices to make. 
And I think she's saying this should be an everyday choice. Yikes. She goes on to falsely equate a jury and criminal court with a jury of physicians deciding whether people live or die. In criminal court, people decide whether a person is, is guilty or not, and sometimes whether they get to live or die. It seems to me that the simplest, wisest thing to do would be to submit cases like that of the malformed idiot baby to a jury of expert physicians. An ordinary jury decides matters of life and death on the evidence of untrained and often prejudiced observers. Their own verdict is not based on the knowledge of criminology, and they are often swayed by obscure prejudices or the eloquence of a prosecutor. Even if the accused before them is guilty, there is often no way of knowing that he would commit new crimes, that he would not become a useful and productive member of society. A mental defective, on the other hand, is almost sure to be a potential criminal. The evidence before a jury of physicians considering the case of an idiot would be exact and scientific. Their findings would be free from the prejudice and inaccuracy of untrained observation. They would act only in cases of true idiocy, where there could be no hope of mental development. So, in this third paragraph, she argues in favor of a jury of expert physicians, continuing on with her equivalency with a jury in criminal court. Because in criminal court, of course, a jury is just comprised of any fucking one selected by the lawyers. And... Those people aren't trained in criminology. They typically don't have legal background, a background in law enforcement. A lot of times people like that are struck from juries and they carry prejudices. And of course, they are swayed by the charisma, eloquence and prejudices of a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. I don't quite think this is the same. I mean, I think the point that she's trying to make is that we already let people decide on who gets to continue existing in everyday society and who does not. It further illustrates my point that she considers this choice of who should live and die as an everyday decision. But anyway, how is it that you think that the people in criminal court have prejudices and prosecutors have prejudices, but these doctors are not going to? Inconceivable. I'm stuck right now. Because they're doctors, and doctors are somehow better than your everyday average human. I don't know. Doctors, she was wrong. they have brought their prejudices to the quote unquote operating room yeah. for centuries, right? Like a lot of the freaking studies and procedures and stuff we have are based upon doctors being racist. Prejudiced. Yes. Different prejudices. For sure. And it's interesting, too, that she goes on to say, like, there's not a way for the jury to know if this person they're convicting is going to go commit other crimes. Like, that person could turn out to be productive. So you'll make that argument for somebody who is possibly a criminal, but you can't apply that same argument to a person who is born deformed or disabled? That's some cognitive dissonance right there. Mm -hmm. And some fucking special pleading. It appears... She is more on the side of a person who has potentially committed a crime than she is on the side of an infant whose only quote-unquote crime is being born with a deformity or disability, which of course is not a crime. It's not a crime, but 
she sees a person who has potentially committed a crime more worthwhile than an infant who hasn't done anything but be born the way they were born. An innocent baby. Mm-hmm. It's sick. It is true. The physician's court might be liable to abuse like other courts. The powerful of the earth might use it to decide cases to suit themselves. But if the evidence were presented openly and the decisions made public before the death of the child, there would be little danger of mistakes or abuses. Anyone interested in the case who did not believe the child ought to die might be permitted to provide for its care and maintenance. It would be humanly impossible to give absolute guarantees for every baby worth saving, but a similar condition prevails throughout our lives. Conservatives ask too much perfection of these new methods and institutions, although they know how far the old ones have fallen short of what they were expected to accomplish. We can only wait and hope for better results as the average of human intelligence, trustworthiness, and justice arises. Meanwhile, we must decide between a fine humanity like Dr. Heiselden's and a cowardly sentimentalism. She recognizes that there might be an abuse of power in this physician's court and thinks this will be minimized by making these hearings and decisions open to the public. No, sweetheart. That's not how it works, because we already know that with with court proceedings, trials, judges get paid off, prosecutors get paid off. Mm-hmm. Who's to say that the father of a deformed or severely disabled child couldn't have swayed the decisions of a physician's court and paid them off to kill a kid, even though the mother or the entire rest of the family is in favor of letting this person exist and making sure they have what they need to exist. Mm -hmm. Or if you are a physician yourself and you just don't want to take care of a disabled child or rear a disabled infant and let your own die, you might actually be okay with helping other people's children and is different when you have to take care of a disabled child. I can think of... Yeah. yeah, we could keep going. Having these hearings conducted in front of the public would not have had any effect. And also, the public's not going to keep you on. Damn, don't you know HIPAA didn't exist because. Oh, man, <laughs> did it not so? <gasps> Talking about people's medical history open in the public, I mean, like, that is a terrible thing because let's say that there's some people who they allow to exist and now everyone just knows. My whole deal and my whole setup. Yeah. Medically. That's true. But we are judging it from the standpoint of a 21st century perspective. I know, but that's all we can do. I mean, I understand. Yes. So back then, that probably wasn't all that uncommon, especially if you had Yeah, they would put disabled people in the circus and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's dangerous, too, because let's say that physicians allow a person to live that other pro-eugenics folks would be against and then now they go out and maybe kill this person mm-hmm. or have that person killed or like what if the by doctor some moves other doctor away? not in the physician's court exactly i was about to say what the doctor moves away and then no other doctors will treat this person so then they end up dying slowly so many things she was wrong she i'm was sorry i just base. i see a lot wrong with that I mean, if you want to compare a criminal court to this, it's another system that there are so many people criminalized who have never done anything wrong. We don't have that down. 
<laughs> I mean, and also, even though the people on a jury are not folks educated in law, criminology, etc., the people presenting the evidence are, and those people often misrepresent and misconstrue the facts, and then the jury is receiving that distorted view and then applying their further observations and prejudices and and lenses onto the distorted view they get through prosecution witnesses and people in in law enforcement. So thinking that physicians are going to be objective individuals is just flawed. They are not. They are people just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. They have a huge responsibility, but they're not above the vices of the rest of us. In the same paragraph, she's talking about how (laughs) with these hearings being open to the public, anyone opposed to the child's death can be allowed to care for them and raise them. Which, I don't have any objections to that necessarily other than the thing we mentioned before about how people might have bad motives. She grew up Um, privileged, and it shows. Yes, it does. And she goes on to say that people expect too much perfection of this system and pulls a whataboutism saying that other systems have failed and didn't achieve their intended outcomes. So we need to just wait and hope for a better system. (laughs) In the meantime, let's keep killing babies, though. Because this is right. We should wait for a better system as the average of human intelligence, trustworthiness, and justice arises. That is very Pollyanna, and there's a lot of different ways that that can be interpreted, right? Like, is she saying, like, we're just going to wait for science and medicine to advance? Are we waiting for people to develop a greater sense of empathy? <laughs> like, what, like what are we waiting for here to come up with this better system of perfecting yeah. how people decide who lives and dies? <gasps> and she finishes with, oh boy. Meanwhile, we must decide between a fine humanity like Dr. Heiselden, and a cowardly sentimentalism. That takes me every time. A cowardly sentimentalism is what she is calling... Fighting for a child to live. That's what she <laughs> thinks of the people who consider life sacred. Cowardly All life sacred, not just normal life. <laughs> oh, Lord. Like she said that as a deaf blind woman yes. living in 20th century yes. U.S. from the deep south, born on a plantation. Yes. Yep. My God. But it's cowardly sentimentalism to want to fight for the life of a severely disabled child. But people who let those children die horribly, those are great humans. That's fine humanity? Fine humanity. That's right. It's cowardly to keep people alive and fight. And the fight to actually give people the support that they need and make sure that their families and communities have the tools to support them as well, because we've talked about how important that is. Yeah. Like, that's cowardly? That is a massive effort. 
if in fact you only see a person with a disability or these specific disabilities as a burden then you would look at it as well they don't have much of a life and you'd say people don't have the heart to right do the right thing and allow that person to actually die allow them to die or kill them themselves like there are people who would say this is cruel to let this person live and i honestly think that's probably part of her point but she's not saying that per se because she did say some very terrible things but i do think that plays a role and that's sure in a lot of people's estimation back then of oh if this person has this me hell that's a lot of people now people still go with that like oh if the child is going to have a lot to severe disabilities then abortion is merciful and a lot of people back then thought the same thing letting the child die or killing the child is merciful because they won't have much of a life but that's fucked up the fact that you would much rather let this baby die than to say, maybe it's not the baby that's the problem. It's a society. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should, I don't know, try and have some things in place so this child can have as well-rounded a life as possible. Not just look at him and go, "Up, oh, you aren't worth the effort. Yeah. I don't know where it starts where like people just deemed all like severely disabled people as potential criminals and maybe that stigma came out of like listen some criminals are and have been people with mental illness and so i don't know if it started with that there's some people and even helen keller i think would have agreed with this position that poverty that's what i was about to say brings on a lot of these situations and so just like poverty can bring on disability which she believed mm-hmm. poverty can bring disabled people to live lives of crime mm-hmm. they have it no is other the case options. now it is the case today right a significant number of the homeless population are folks who are disabled and have mental illnesses yes i think it's something like 50 percent, bro it's got to be at least a- at least So this is definitely true. Yes. Wow. She just, if she would have took a few more steps in her reasoning, she wouldn't have been able to see how she was wrong about this particular matter when it comes to eugenics. Now, at this time, she was 35 and apparently they said, oh, she moved away from that. But I didn't see any evidence. I think she moved away from writing about it and supporting it openly. I am not convinced that she ever. She might not have changed her stance. That view. Yeah, I don't know about all of that. Like we pointed out, she supported great causes. Yeah. But she also supported this cause, and this is dangerous. At any rate, she is a complex person, and all we were trying to do is illustrate a more complete image of her than Mm. is in the media and is taught in school so not the sanitized not sanitized she did some great things and she uh, supported some terrible things probably like a lot of people of history and we just wanted to bring you that story this is intersectional insights if you like our content leave us a rating or review to help the podcast check us out on instagram twitter and facebook And if you have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions, you can email us, intersectionalinsights at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.